0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Expert Opinions, a new podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, a leading global institution for the study of Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. I'm your host, Masha Udentsima Brenner. Before I introduce our guests and topics for this episode, I'd like to thank Eurasianet.org for their generous support, which has made this podcast possible. And to note that the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of the Harriman Institute or Eurasianet. In today's episode, we'll discuss the public protests that erupted all over Russia in late March and touch upon the evolving state of U.S.-Russia relations. On March 2, 2017, Russian anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny released a report and video accusing Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev of massive corruption and calling Russians to the streets on March 26th. The Russian authorities, who remained silent about the accusations, did not issue permits for the protests, but tens of thousands of people took to the streets all over Russia anyway, leading to the largest protests the country has seen since 2012. Why did so many people turn out? Why did so few see it coming? and what will happen next? Today, we'll discuss these developments and more.
1: And development
0: I'm talking to political analyst and commentator, Maria Snigovaya, a doctoral candidate in Colombia's Department Nation of Political Science and a columnist for the Russian Business Daily, Vedomosti.
1: This new development is quite unusual for several reasons. Uh, for once, uh, it's, as you mentioned, a video that created the whole uh, hype and large scale protest across many, many Russian cities. <laughs> Previously, if you follow the um, uh, protest, mo- protest mobilization among the Russian uh, citizens, uh, usually uh, some other focal points, such as elections or some kind of authority Kremlin generated pretext. Used as this um, tipping point, mm-hmm. uh, served as this tipping point for, for this protest. This is pretty much the first time in the recent history where a protest leader creates this proposition, and people are so kind of frustrated with what they see as a corruption in the among the Kremlin authorities that they go in the streets. And the second important development is that this time again for. For the first time in a while, we see such large nation-scale protests that mm-hmm. took place in about 80 Russian cities. It is quite unprecedented. So, yeah, I have to say I have been surprised. I initially was quite reluctant to um, this idea of Navalny participating in the presidential election but because I didn't think he would be as successful. But mm-hmm. now as we see how successful he mobilizes the population, how many young you know, people, younger people in their early 20s joining the protest and how um, actually enthusiastic people are about supporting him and embracing his um, message. I think he's certainly doing great things for the Russians for Russia's future.
0: And how willing they are to risk arrest, knowing what happened with Volodymyr Dela.
1: That is true, and it is quite admirable. You know, Navalny himself is one example, right? Because remember that we his brother is in jail and he's arrested on multiple occasions. Today, I think, is the first day he's released yeah. again. Uh, but uh, it's also quite admirable that uh, Russians are not afraid of risking their future You know, they're, and they're going out there and they still re- insist that they have some civic and political rights and they insist on uh, um, essentially defending those rights mm-hmm. um, I'm quite proud of my father who always <laughs> participates in those uh, events but it's also important that uh, the younger generations of Russians, as I mentioned, usually students or young professionals, are overrepresented according to different surveys in these protests. And this is great news. First of all, they're brave, they're courageous, they're mm-hmm. not afraid of being arrested. And second, they certainly are not as dependent on the state TV channel's coverage, so they're not as brainwashed as the older generation. So they're mobilized because they got this information about the video uh, through the Internet. Um, and um, and they are active. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is that they're active. This means that actually Russia's future is not as gloomy as we used to think about it.
0: Which is very refreshing to it's hear. It's
1: amazing news, yeah.
0: <laughs> and... What was the state media's coverage like? I know that there was no coverage in the beginning. Can you comment
1: on that? This was quite interesting because essentially it shows you once again how artificial the whole coverage is, how you know, uh, top-down orchestrated the whole thing is. Uh, because initially it was clear that the uh, State TV channels did not receive the order Mm-hmm. from the authorities, so they had no idea how to cover it, so they tried to silence the whole thing, and it was quite ironic when you have Protestants like in many, many Russian cities and uh, the, the main news on state TV channels is, again, some development in Ukraine, you know? <laughs> <coughs> but then, uh, after a day or two, finally, it seems like they were given an uh, order to kind of to discuss it, and of course, the coverage is typically uh, Derisive, shall we say. Essentially, they try to portray the protests as something that only um, uh, high school students are interested mm-hmm. in. Somebody even called it as um, <coughs> another crusade of, ch- of children, you know, children's mm-hmm. crusade, as uh, the one that took place in the medieval ages. So try to underst- understate the importance of it. But the very fact that at least this time they had to cover it again is certainly an achievement by both the Russians and Duvalny because it shows you that the skill of the process was so big that it was impossible to silence it.
0: And a lot of teachers in Russia are trying to silence students even before the protests happened in response to Navalny's video, can you comment on that? Yeah,
1: and I think it's really a very important, um, very important issue. Thank you for asking. So, as somebody who myself has studied in the Russian high school, I don't want to say bad things about my professors in the school, but. It's important to say that the Russian system, the educational system, has not changed much since the Soviet times, and as we know from multiple studies in political science as well, the education is a major uh, institute institution of socialization of people. So essentially, people become the way they are through high schools, and in Russia, the system often is um, oriented towards suppressing the um, you know the civic activity and the um, uh, independence of the students what you do there is that your main goal as a student as a high school student is to abide to the professor mm-hmm. to abide to what your teacher tells you and uh, um, there are some uh, classes where you discuss things analyze things mm-hmm. but most of the time you learn something and then you restate it you learn you restate this is one of the indicators of um, a backwardness, You know, in less developed societies, this is how the educational system works. And, of course, uh, we see that under Putin, these trends that are already there, they have been there to begin with, they have been um, made worse uh, by the authorities. They have introduced different um, classes intended to increase this degree of patriotism, mm-hmm. of love, for Russia, for the country among the students, which of course reminds you of the Soviet practices of indoctrinating the students um, with this ideology. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really heartwarming to see that increasingly the students are not, um, the students resist to complying, to comply with those um, uh, developments. That and why
0: do you think that is?
1: I think that, and actually, um, me and Denise Volkov in, back in early 2015, we published an article in Vedomosti uh, to um, counter this common claim about how, you know, um, said the future of Russia is, and how the the Putin's generation only cared about. Um, essentially supporting Putin. There was a popular claim made at the time among some scholars in the West as well. And so we show instead on the studies by Levada Center, which is the only independent Poland company in Russia, uh, that the younger Russians are in fact different from the rest of the society. And the differences are good, in the sense that these Russians are becoming more westernized, more civic, more proactive, and very importantly, as mentioned before, they no longer depend on TV channels for the news. So they look for the information themselves. They check it all the time on their phones, you know, on their computers, and they challenge the teachers. So the teachers are no longer figures of authority to those young uh, kids. And hence, uh, they, by comparing the... Um, uh, reality to what they said, communicated by the official propaganda, obviously they find some discrepancy in it. And this is also exaggerated by the gloomy economic situation in which Russia is, Mm -hmm. so they just don't see the reality as um, bright and happy as Putin is trying to portray it. Mm -hmm. And this is largely the result of the modernization, of the development of Russia, of the increasing penetration of the Internet, and the also increasing economic well-being of the Russian citizens. So we are actually, I think, we do observe the development of the middle class and some kind of civic and political culture, early development of the political culture among the um, Russian uh, younger generation. This means that, again, that the future of Russia is quite... Um, Positive, and that's
0: something you really don't hear very often.
1: So yeah, and I'm I glad think yeah, I think it's important to remember that there's also some positive modernization processes ongoing in the Russian society. And if you travel to Moscow, you'll see it. If you travel to the big cities, you'll notice that there's there's some spirit of um, the Europe is coming into the country, whether Putin wants wants it or not. It's coming through the openness. The, the people travel increasingly to different countries. People buy uh, products that are made uh, by in, diff- in the West, they try to f- copy the um, lifestyles, and eventually they become incorporated not only into this, you know, uh, not only into the lifestyle, on this this artificial level, but also they eventually start copying the um, deeper elements of the Western and European culture, which is uh, political activism. We also see, by the way, uh, very positive development, the increase in the volunteering Mm -hmm. among different groups of the Russian society, particularly among the younger Russians. and that was project. not a
0: part of the culture before.
1: No, certainly not in the Soviet times, unfortunately. And state, the Russian state all, always makes sure to suppress it. But nonetheless, increasing number of Russians are participating in this kind of charity activities. They try to organize, try to maybe organize some, I don't know, funds to defend kids. Or maybe, I don't know, during the, far, uh, during the big fires in Russia, again, there was... Um, really big activities on the grassroots level, trying to help people who were hurt by it. And that is increasing. That's another indication of uh, increasing development of the civic culture. So, Inglehart's um, theory, modernization theory, and post-materialist values are also working in Russia, and they are penetrating the Russian society. And just
0: a week after the protests, there were, was a bombing in St. Petersburg, and the State Duma then tried to pass a moratorium on protests altogether, which seems really convenient, and there has been a lot of conspiratorial thinking that has arisen. Can you comment
1: on that? I'm, I'm certainly. I'm confident that the Russian state will try to use uh, the terrorist pretext as a way to silence the protests. Uh, to a large extent, um, we also see that they're not confident, they're not certain about which Way to pick, you know that they, tr- they try different ideas, maybe to ban the protest activity altogether temporarily, mm-hmm. or maybe just organize a count set of counter-protests, um, anti-terrorist protests meant to unite the Russian citizens okay. around Putin's uh, figure, but. Um, a lot of things, a lot of future developments will depend on how Navalny and the current movement will handle that mm-hmm. response by the Kremlin. But in general, I think that the advantage in on the, is on the side of the opposition at the moment because they keep. Uh, Navalny, his team keep opening new offices in different regions. Mm-hmm. They keep attracting really significant shares of the younger population. In St. Petersburg, for example, the line uh, to volunteer of the people who try to um, become the volunteers at Navalny's office was so big mm-hmm. it uh, actually went across several um, streets. Um, so there is a lot of demand for that. And I think that It will be hard for the Kremlin to come up with a salient way to counter that, but we'll see. It's interesting.
0: And what do you think about the conspiracy theories that, you know, the state might be behind the bombings?
1: Um, Two things. First of all, uh, there are some reasons why people become conspiratorial. First of all, we know that 1999 bombings uh, that preceded Putin's uh, second war in Chechnya had some... Really interesting coincidences that um, made actually David Sara recently published a book on them explaining how that might have been all doing by FSB in Russia. So, first of all, we have already precedents. Second of all, there is an interesting timing, right? You have a, a week before you have large scale protests mm-hmm. in Russia, suddenly afterwards you have bombings that w- seem to have given the Kremlin a reason to suppress any protest activity. However, uh, it's also important to say that we don't see any kind of indication, any evidence, rem- remote evidence hinting that it might might have been been done by by Kremlin. So, I'm not a big supporter of this particular uh, conspirological theory. However, there's something that these theories tell you is that, and it's that people are really suspicious of the Kremlin. They don't trust Putin anymore, and they believe that he's capable of anything, which by the way, it's probably true. <laughs> he is possible of capable. to question if this was the case, and um, it kind of shows you that there is rising levels of mistrust to the Rus- to the Kremlin, among the Russian societies. If anything, again, it's an indication that the opposition movement will grow stronger in the, ni- in the next years because people are tired of this government and they want change. And how does it look for Putin that he was actually in
0: St. Petersburg at the time of the bombing?
1: Yeah. Oh, by the way, that's another reason why this conspiracy is not very plausible. Uh, again, uh, it's really harmful for Putin's image to be in the city at the time when the bombing happens there. Usually, first of all, if the Russian, if the Kremlin starts something, uh, the Russian presidents are usually away. So when the Kremlin starts certain wars, it usually happens when the Russian... Uh, policymakers travel somewhere at the meeting, so they had no idea this suddenly <laughs> happened. Uh, but also for Putin's image, and once again, um, remember that back in 1999, Putin came as a big defender of Russia, a protector against terrorism. He started the war in Chechnya, he strengthened the state, and all, a lot of his legitimacy stems from this image of protector and defender. Uh, Of course, now that suddenly a terrorist attack, a relatively big one, happens in the city while Putin is there, is really detrimental for his image, not something you want to have a year or less before the presidential election. In fact, it's quite bad for him. And given the high levels of the mistrust in the society, the economic decline, and some geopolitical failures in Syria, for example, all these developments are certainly not good for Putin.
0: The day after I spoke with Maria, Navalny, fresh out of jail, released another video, where he called people back to the streets in response to the Kremlin's unwillingness to investigate Medvedev's corruption. I talked about it with Yana Garahovskaya, Harriman postdoctoral research scholar in Russian politics.
2: He uh, starts the video by basically delivering his resignation from the protest movement and then kind of cutting cutting to his actual message and, and saying whether you know, is it is it possible that the authorities actually expect him uh, to stop his activities by through arrest and, and in other other ways? So it's a great video.
0: Yeah, and definitely targeting young people, same as before. Um, so he's calling for protests on June 12th, Russian Day, mm-hmm. and uh, he's reappropriating the word "patriots," which I really liked, to apply to the protesters instead of the pro-Kremlin crowd. Um, What does your gut tell you? A lot can happen between now and June.
2: Yeah, so I think that the protests, I mean, will go ahead. Um, I think that the, the tactic... Of calling protesters patriots is, is a good one from an organizational point of view, um, because he says it doesn't matter what your political standpoint is. What we're what we're against is corruption, and we're against corruption for a particular reason because it it um, impoverishes Russia. And as patriotic Russians, we should stand up against corruption. And then he goes on to say, and the people who are against us, they're the the thieves. They're they're you know not patriots. Um, so I think it's a good organizational message. Whether or not y- what happens between now and then, it's hard to predict. Um, the presidential election has just been moved up uh, to March 18th, which actually also happens to be the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. Mm-hmm. Um, Navalny may still be disqualified from running. Uh, he may still be arrested. He, there may be another trial. Um, the authorities may uh, deny... Uh, protesters the right to organize, not issue them permits. But I think realistically, um, these protests are going to happen. I don't know if they're going to ha- they're going to be across 84 cities again, um, but I think it's a good strategy to have it on a day that's uh, that has some symbolic meaning, also a day that people get off work. Mm-hmm.
0: And how is it possible that Navalny is still standing? I mean, given what we've seen happen to opposition leaders like himself.
2: Well, I think that Navalny. Um, I think that Nemtsov is probably maybe is not the right comparison to make there because I doubt at least I personally think that um, it's unlikely that Namsov was was killed by the Kremlin i mm-hmm. think it's it's much more likely that he was killed by others um, we We tend to kind of simplistically think about the Russian system as if it is this direct line from Putin all the way down, but in reality Putin issues kind of directives or he signals about things he would like to happen and then that message goes down through this kind of broken telephone and ricochets in a bunch of different ways Mm -hmm. and so the actions that actually end up happening may not be exactly what Putin wants and so I think it's an open question uh, whether Putin is better off that Nemtsov is dead. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for, for Navalny... Putin is really hoping, uh, I've seen this in a couple of things, that he's really hoping for a 70-70 outcome in the election, which uh, which basically means he wants 70% turnout and he wants 70% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to generate some interest in the election, or to actually get people to come out, it actually makes sense to have Navalny run. On the other hand, you continue to provide you with a platform if you allow him to run, and he's going to continue campaigning on on um, on corruption. Um, and they've tried different tactics, right? It's clear that putting him on trial, putting him in, in prison, arresting him, I mean, it's going to stop him in the, sh- in the short term, but it's not going to stop him in the long term. They kind of switched tactics a few years ago where they arrested his brother, and now he's serving a sentence, and so they have kind of this hostage Um I don't know what, what keeps Navalny going. I think, you know, he's a very charismatic leader, and I think that kind of explains it. But, yeah, he's got a lot to lose. I mean, he has a family. He has friends. He has, um, you know, his career. Um, so I think he's vulnerable in a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah, and even with himself not being the Kremlin's doing, mm-hmm. I mean, the same could happen to Navalny. He's Absolutely. definitely made a lot of people very angry mm-hmm. in that sense.
2: Right, right. No, he, I mean, cl- clearly he's, he's vulnerable, right? Um, and it would only take, I mean, we, I, I hate to speculate about, you know, his kind of personal safety. Oh. And he very famously doesn't employ bodyguards because right. he says that there's no point.
0: Last November, Yana published a very pertinent paper in the journal Post-Soviet Affairs, where she examined electoral competition in authoritarian regimes, using the results of 43 Russian gubernatorial elections as her case study. She discovered some interesting things about how protests affect electoral competition. I asked her to talk a little bit about her findings.
2: And so I was interested in the question of the degree of control that that, that exists in these elections. So is it simply just that these elections happen but we know what the, the result will be and so the answer to um, you know any kind of variation between elections, why some one governor won with 60% and another governor won with 90%, the answer is, well, it's just mal- different kinds of malpractice. Mm-hmm. Um, potentially, another answer could be, well, it's people do actually show up and vote, so maybe it is something about voter preferences. Um, the issue, the, or kind of the problem with capturing voter preferences under authoritarian regimes is that, well, what do you use as a variable to actually capture that, um, you know, Uh, previous voting patterns um, in different elections, well, those potentially might be also um, the result of malpractice. Um, There's some survey work out there, but but there's also a question of whether or not people are answering surveys truthfully because Mm -hmm. they may be afraid to say uh, how little or how much they support the government. And so I had this idea of looking at protest Mm -hmm. because protest, especially under authoritarian conditions, is this... um, very visible signal of political discontent. Uh, You're risking a lot to go out onto the street. You obviously care very much about what you're you're protesting. And so my idea was then to use protest as a measure to see uh, um, basically people's political preferences in the regions. And so I looked at the gubernatorial elections since 2012, since they were brought back. Um, And what I found was that in regions in Russia where there had been... um, protest activity, um, the elections were actually tighter races. So mm-hmm. the incumbent United Russia governors had smaller winning margins. Um, and I interpreted that as basically uh, the result of the authorities' um Using less malpractice in those elections because what they feared was more protests. So by mm-hmm. protesting, people had demonstrated that in that particular region, civil society um, was very responsive. And so, as an authoritarian, you know, authoritarian elite, you would be reticent to actually really employ a lot of malpractice. So governors w- would win with you know, 52 percent or 55 percent instead of 80 mm-hmm. percent. Um, and I think you know, a very kind of Visible example of that is actually the 2013 Moscow election, mm-hmm. the, the mayoral election in Moscow where Navalny ran. Um, Sergei Sobayanin ended up winning the election, but he only won it with 51%. Mm-hmm. So he was very close to a runoff. So if no one had gotten a majority, 50%, there would have been a runoff between the top two candidates, would have, which would have been Sobayanin and Navalny. Um, and no one wanted that. And so, um, you know, it was, that was, I think, an example of how close these elections could really be in these very active regions. And obviously Moscow is one of the most kind of um, mobilized uh, region for protest. So United
0: Russia should be scared right now.
2: I think United Russia, yeah. So there's this question of how much do you manipulate, right? I mean, I think Putin is is genuinely... Uh, popular in Russia, mm-hmm. and we've seen uh, work that, that demonstrates that you know he does have between 70 and 80 percent of popular support, so he can win an election. The question is, are people actually going to show up to vote? So you you know people may kind of not support Navalny, or they may see no alternative to Putin, but if they think that their elections are rigged, if they're kind of dissatisfied with the political system, they may just sh- it's not their- they're not going to vote against Putin, but they're just not going to show up to vote. Mm-hmm. In which case, you um, know, Russia and, in general, the state has a very big problem because uh, you're legit- you may still win the election, but you're- clearly your legitimacy is at stake because very few people came out to actually vote for you. So I think that, that they, in general, the Kremlin doesn't really know or hasn't decisively picked a strategy to, to deal with the protests. So they they didn't cover the protests as they were happening, and then they, they caught up... Um, in the next couple of days, and started covering them, but from a very, obviously, a very one-sided perspective. And, you know, this these were kind of um, politicized accusations from this man running for, for government. So, obviously, he's accusing us of corruption. And then there was a lot of uh, finger-pointing about, you know, kind of what are you doing to the youth? You know, you're exposing young people to a lot of risk and arrest and think about their futures. And, and then school propaganda, too. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, then they've, they had the tactic of organizing... Uh, smaller counter protests, and then having staging these, you know, youth protests against Navalny, or where, where people were standing with signs saying, "Where's our ten thousand euros mm-hmm. that you promised us?" and signaling, or ba- basically, the message out there was that um, Navalny had given young people financial inducements to actually participate in these protests, and obviously, all of this was fake. Um, but, it, but in general, the response to to the accusations of corruption has been almost nothing, right? Medvedev mm-hmm. had some statement, He but he came out with a statement um, the same day that the bombing in St. Petersburg happened, so obviously that was not well covered. Uh, and he basically said something like, you know, this is like making kamput. He just starts with a bunch of trash, and then you kind of stew it together, and then you get whatever accusations. So obviously very dismissive. Um, the proposal in the Duma... Uh, made by the communists to actually start an official investigation was was suppressed by United Russia because they have a majority, you know, and so um, in this video that Navalny just put out today, calling for more protests, he actually says, you know, have any of our questions been answered? They haven't. No one's resigned. There's no criminal investigation. And if there's um,
0: nothing to hide, then why not investigate? Exactly.
2: And so he says, you know, it's not a question of uh, if we're going to come out onto the streets. It's a question of when. And so mm-hmm. uh, June 12th is the day. Um, so I think that going forward, there has to be a more of a, from the Kremlin, a more coherent response. Um, I think ironically though, the response might be that some people might get fired, right, we, or, or investigated, or whatever else, because, uh, you know, some heads will have to roll.
0: On April 27th, a couple of weeks after my conversation with Jana took place, Navalny was attacked with Zylionka, a brilliant green antiseptic that has become the weapon of choice of pro-Kremlin activists against anti-government protesters and opposition leaders. Normally, Zelonka is harmless unless ingested, but Navalny's doctors suspect the antiseptic was mixed with another chemical, as Navalny is currently suffering from a burn to his right eye. At this point, it is unclear whether or not he will regain his sight. In other news, According to a recent poll conducted by the Levada Center, an independent polling organization in Russia, only 48% of the population would vote for Putin if snap elections were held. This is down from 62% in 2015. It'll be interesting to see where all of this goes, particularly in light of current US-Russia relations. That said, I'd like to tell you about a recent event the Harriman Institute hosted with Maria Lippmann, a Russian political analyst and commentator who's the founding editor of Counterpoint Journal at George Washington University. Littman visited us a few days before the protests took place and discussed the Kremlin's attempts in recent years to build a national identity in Russia that borrows both from its Soviet and imperial past and incorporates conservative principles from the Russian Orthodox Church, all the while positioning itself more firmly in opposition to Western and U.S. political values. I asked Lippmann how the presidency of Donald Trump might impact the Kremlin's anti-Western and anti-liberal ideological stance. Here's what she had to say.
3: Before Trump became president and shortly after, uh, based on his statements uh, that um, he thinks very highly of Putin, uh, etc., uh, Russian television and part of the Russian officialdom, started speaking more uh, positively about the United States, Mm -hmm. and first and foremost about the new president, and especially very negatively about the previous, about President Mm -hmm. Obama. And uh, it turned out that, again, it was easy to use it as a tap, Mm -hmm. to turn down anti-American sentiments uh, and to send a message to the people that um, um, America is no longer... an inveterate enemy Mm -hmm. um, or maybe even potentially as a friend also uh, there was a sense among the Russian people uh, um, after the annexation of Crimea which of course in Russia is referred to as a return of Crimea Mm -hmm. that we have proven to the world that we are strong so it's time to make up Uh, Don't they see how strong we have become? We want cooperation, but we want a cooperation from a position of equality and respect. And there was a sense that uh, Donald Trump is the leader of the United States that would deliver uh, uh, parity, uh, equality, and respect. When it didn't turn out quite this way, quite recently, the Kremlin toned it down again. There was even a rumor that the Kremlin sent a message to state television don't uh, speak about Trump too much and so positively, and the television did, so I think probably the sentiments changed a bit.
0: President Putin's attitude toward the new U.S. administration is certainly not clear cut. In an April 12th interview with Mir TV, he stated that trust, especially on the military level, has not become better, but has degraded. What happens next remains to be seen. Now I'd like to switch gears a little bit. I've always found that novelists are the most astute at both predicting events and processing history. With that in mind, I caught up with Sana Krasikov, an award-winning writer who spoke at the Harriman in March about her new novel, The Patriots, a very relevant title given what we just discussed about Navalny. The book, published only days after Trump's inauguration, is a three-generational saga that begins with the story of an idealistic woman named Florence who moves from the U.S. to the USSR in the 1930s and ends up getting stuck there. It deals a lot with U.S.-Russian relations and how Russians and Americans perceive one another. Hi, Sana. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Masha. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm really interested in what Russians think about U.S. democracy. And there's a passage in your book that really sums this up very well. It's in a scene that takes place in 2008 in Moscow, so way before the current atmosphere. Can you tell me about it and read that passage?
4: So um, Julian, who is Florence's son, um, who immigrates to the United States in 1979, uh, later returns to Russia as an oil executive, essentially. He's a shipbuilder, but um, he is working for an American oil company that's doing a joint venture with the Russians, which we're seeing you know, some of that in the news now with Tillerson and so on, how, how entangled we really are, um, when, it, especially when it comes to the oil industry. And so he's at this um, business dinner um, f- at, with his partners at a um, state-run oil company. And the first thing that the... Um, these guys start doing is they kind of start ribbing the Americans. And this happens. I think everyone who sat through a dinner in Russia has had this experience where, at some point, with enough shots um, being drunk, they start telling you that, like everything, all your institutions and all uh, are as phony as their own. Um, and and people like they're so athletic about this form mm-hmm. of um, of cynicism that I just thought it was really funny to include. So they're talking about um, Abu Ghraib, uh-huh. and the photos that came out of it, those really damning photos. And um, this uh, this Russian guy says, But really, why all the hysterics and running noses over a few photos? Mukhov says, picking up the thread. The point is the scandal. What is it about? A myth. What myth? That your American soldiers fight with white gloves on. He began to address the table at large, dropping the role of joke-teller and coming fully into his own as a propagandist. I prepare my face for what's to come. Your military? Sadistic brigands. No better than our spitznaz. Your demokratia? Imitation cheese democracy, just like Russia's. And your supposedly free press? Let's not even start a that charade. Well, guess what? It turns out everyone is exactly the same, he says, right on cue. The righteousness of his anti-righteousness is simply too irresistible to contain. He'll have no peace until he's convinced me that every institution in America is a fabrication as elaborate as Russia's own boundless Potemkinville. But <clears throat> I'm just going to pause and before I read the next part because... Um, this came directly out of the mouth of a friend of mine who works in the Russian oil industry and travels there frequently. And what was so crazy about the scene, which I took almost wholesale from um, the story he told me, was that um, he got really worked up, you know, as an American patriot, as a Soviet emigre, but I mean, a Russian emigrate. And he said um, at some point, uh, well, I can just as easily accuse the Russians of masterminding those terror attacks um, on uh, those uh, bombings of the apartment buildings and blaming Mm -hmm. it on the Chechens so you could re-enter the war with Chechnya. Which, by the way, you know, the recent terror attack on Russia, so many Russians believe that that was just... Of course course they do. And the
0: timing with a week after the
4: protests. Exactly, right? So, uh, and I thought, and so his boss was there thinks, oh my God, he's going to blow this deal. He's going to insult the Russians because he's essentially um, suggesting that their president, Vladimir Putin, who they work essentially for the Kremlin, is a terrorist. But instead, um, what happens is um, he says to them, well, according to that logic, the Kremlin bombed all those apartment buildings and blamed them on the Chechens. And the guy turns to him and instead of being angry, he says, yes, my he shouts, of course we did it. He reaches out his arms as though to give my recalcitrant head a kiss, his face shining with the satisfied glow of a man who's gotten his point across at last. Um, and it takes sometimes I'll put a scene wholesale from um, something I've seen or heard and I don't always make sense of it at the time. And I think this is what I love about the power of fiction because you don't have to over digest it for your readers. Um, you can put things in and then... Um, couple years later you can catch up to it or the world can change so dramatically that um it catches up with you and so as it's changed now yeah this
0: scene could have been written today because i've heard a lot that exact dialogue that you just read has come from so many russians to me Mm -hmm. after the election of donald trump and the current administration right so
4: i started thinking about this scene a lot after the election because it started making sense to me in a totally different way um I always wondered, I was like, why are these men who are Putin patriots, right? They're openly um, kind of Russian loyalists. Why are they like so quick to accept this theory that their president is a terrorist? And then I thought, oh, when, when I started seeing kind of like the, the let's call them attacks on institutions, you know, the disparaging of of institutions from the um the fed to the judiciary and i was like well when you're accepting this theory what you're saying is that there's no independent center of um there's no independent center of authority in an institution like the army that would prevent this kind of action right Mm -hmm. like somebody there would have to be in charge like protecting the ethics of the military Mm -hmm. and not having it be subordinate to the state right to the Mm -hmm. president and so in a way you're saying yeah it's all phony but what you're also saying is that no one except the the president is in charge like nobody else is really running the show so in a really twisted way it's actually a form of patriotism i told you novelists are astute A
0: huge thanks to Sana for that evocative reading and analysis. I strongly encourage you to read her novel, which is not only a page-turner, but also a deep psychological exploration of human idealism and our relationship to political power. Given that it was conceived and written long before the current state of affairs, it's amazing just how relevant the book is to our political situation today. Thank you all so much for tuning in to the inaugural episode of Expert Opinions, the Harriman Institute's new podcast on Eurasianet. I'd love to hear your feedback and hope you join me next time. Enjoy the rest of your day.